be grateful for that. Well, we're continuing our series through the book of Luke, and chapter 9, we're hitting somewhat of a transition. It's not, it's not one of these major turning points yet through the book, but there's just this sort of some, some subtle transitions that are, that are taking place through the book. And so, so far through the book, Jesus has been performing a lot of miracles, and most of his teaching has been centered on the ethics of the kingdom. What's it mean to live inside the kingdom of God? And he's been gaining both a major following and major opposition. And certainly that's still taking place through the book of Luke. But, but there's now this, this subtle transitioning ta- taking place between, or subtle transition taking place between turning from how do we live more towards who do we live for. And so more and more of his teaching is being centered on who he is and the importance of what he is going to do. And more and more, people aren't just sort of meant to, 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 to see miracles and marvel at him, but more and more, people are needing to make a claim about who this Jesus is. Not just his message, but, but as him, as God's messenger and as the Messiah. And so last week, we saw in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9 that the 12 disciples went out and began to proclaim themselves about the kingdom and, 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 and that they were, they were sent out and people were called to sort of make, make a sort of decide what they believed then. And, and as this is happening, we're seeing growing, not just sort of, sort of his, his popularity and opposition rising, but we're seeing growing confusion by some of, wait, who is this guy? And, and profound clarity from others about who Christ is. Going a little bit out of order, next week we're going to cover verses 7 through 9. So we did verses 1 through 6 last week. We're going to begin verse 10 this week. But 7 through 9 we're going to put together next week with verses 18 through 20. Because it's, it's really about two strong and opposite reactions of, of people to who this Christ is. One, there is much confusion from Herod over cr- who Christ is. And then we see stunning clarity from Peter, who answers the question, really the most important question any person living then or now must answer for themselves, of who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus Christ? doesn't matter who some say he is or who your parents claim him to be or what do historians you believe agree with, but who do you say that Jesus Christ is? So we're going to look at that question next week. It's the most important question any of us face with our lives. But this morning we're going to be in verses 10 through 17, and we're going to read that together in just a moment. But this is a passage that's about 20 years. It's, it probably goes down in, in my own personal history as... As, as the passage I heard preached from, that, that still goes as, as the, I regard as the worst sermon I have ever heard. So, um, so the personal bar for me this morning doesn't feel that high um, to, to, to climb over, but I, I was on a spring break trip in college, and we would go for a week to serve with Habitat for Humanity over spring break, and we stayed at this church, and again, it was very generous to, them, to, to host us, but we, we joined their service, and, the pa- and Je- you know, they, they did the story of Jesus breaking the fish and the bread and feeding thousands, and he said, you know, the real miracle in this story the real miracle is the story, as, as you know, this, as this boy from the crowd gave the fish and the loaves, as he shared that Jesus, you know, and then others were fed and others were fed. This preacher at the other day said, the greatest miracle in this story is not what Jesus did, but what he inspired others to do. 
See, the miracle of this story is how this boy, he shared, and then it just created this sort of culture of generosity. And so people went from hungry to sort of just sharing freely of their food. And, and so it says that he really led this way. His selfless example as Jesus really led to selflessness in others and so on and so others. And so we should really think about what we offer up to God and how we can be writing our own miracle stories and, and, and how this story really, what Jesus' example points to something greater. I don't need to tell you sort of some of the errors in that. We all agree that this, the Bible calls us to and demands of us and creates in us a life of radical generosity. But amongst the many things that was missed that day, and I, I'll agree that this, this passage doesn't just point to one miracle, but it points to something so much greater. But, but the passage is not about what we offer up to God or the miracle that we can create, but it's so much better than what, what, what happens if we all band together. The miracle is, is what God has, has done for his people, but what he can, it points to what he continues to do for his people. It points to not just how he provided once for his people, but how he is the ultimate and eternal provision for all his people. So this passage, one of the things I love about it, it, gives, it talks about how he gave provision then, and then it foreshadows the ultimate provision that he brings in himself for his people. So the main idea we're going to look at this morning is simply this. Jesus alone is our provision. Jesus alone is our provision. And so with that, if you could stand as we read God's word, we're going to read Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. If you're relatively new, we stand just as, a, as, a, as an act of honoring and, and just showing reverence to the word of God in which we are all under. So Luke 9, beginning in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of any healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Well, you may be seated. So in the passage we looked at last week in verses 1 through 6, the 12, are, are, they go out and, and really share about Jesus. And they actually have the authority to not just share the message of Jesus. They actually are also themselves healing others of diseases. And it's just this really wonderful ministry that is taking place in the life of of the disciples, but then they come back, and they're kind of coming back, and you can imagine after this, they're, they're sharing stories, and surely they're tired, and they're just surely ready for a bit of sort of retreat and withdrawal with Jesus, and so they withdraw and intend to take some time away from people, but the people found out, and so they go and follow Jesus, and as he so often does, he, as the crowd surrounds him, he begins to teach more and minister more, and I just love how it's almost like a throwaway. Yeah, he just kept healing more people, right? There's all these diseased ones, and he healed all them. 
But now it's, it's near the end of the day, and they're in this desolate place, and it says about 5,000 men were there. Most, most people believe that, you know, you had probably most of them had families with them, or a lot of them would have had families. So this is probably a crowd of about 20,000 people. And the disciples think, it seems sensible to me, we'll let them go home. You know, there is no food, there is no shelter, but Jesus has other ideas. And in what he accomplishes on that day, we see not just a miracle, we see more than a miracle, we see a, we see a fulfillment of how he is, he is the fulfillment of what was promised to God's people, and he is a foreshadow of something much, of even something much greater than what we see on this day. We see in this miracle that Jesus alone is our provision. So we're going to look at that through three points. Point number one is this, our need for provision. Our need for provision. To, to state the obvious, the crowd here is in need. Now, they were in need of a lot of things. At one point, they needed healing. At one point, they, they, they continued to need to be, be taught. But here, at the end of the day, they find themselves in need of being fed. They find themselves in a situation because I've not actually been in a situation like this, but I've not been amongst 20,000 people that found themselves in a desolate place and there's like no food available, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's desolate, it's late, there's no food trucks. So there's just like the, this obvious need that's sort of running throughout this, right? So they have, have, have a physical need and Jesus is about to provide for their physical need, but, but, but it's also sort of this, it's pointing to, boy, people in general are just those who have need. But I think one of the things I love about this passage is just this wonderful picture of, of how weak and frail humanity really is. Right, here, here, here's this group of people that, that are following Jesus Christ. They are with God himself, God himself in human flesh in Jesus, right? They are, they are learning and being healed. They are being taught by the authority of all things. People are receiving miracles. Now, one would think, okay, you, this is crowd is 20,000 strong. It's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger because this is just, something's happening. But it's all about to come to an end. Now, why is it about to come to an end? Because Jesus is tired? Because Jesus is like, hey, I've done enough for the day. Let's just Let's just call it. No, it's about all to come to an end because people were missing a meal and it's like, hey, we're, like, just as a human, it's like, hey, this is it. Like, we're, we're kind of done now. We're, we're ready to go home. There's just, I think, I, I love that it just kind of talks about the fragility that, that we all have as people. But then, so he, 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 he's about to provide this meal. But I think it's much part of, much part of a, a larger theme that we see throughout Scripture that he, he's, he's able to provide this meal because God is always the provider of all things for his people. Right, right, Scripture's clear. Right, right, like we, we work and we labor and we do things like grow crops and, you know, and, and do all these things, but, but all things are from the Lord. Every penny is from the Lord. Every fruit of the field is from the Lord. So we are always dependent on him physically. We are always weak physically and and in need physically, and all things are from him. And I think that is also meant to mirror, and it mirrors our spiritual condition, that we are physically dependent on the Lord, and spiritually we are completely dependent on the Lord. That we are, we are dependent creatures. That we, need, that we need someone to provide for us. We are desperate, and we are dependent. And that's just, that's just our state. You know, I, um, I'm not sure the moment personally that I crossed the line from I, I was balding to I'm bald. Um, so I'm not sure the day I passed the bald barrier, but I'm, I remember the day when I realized I had passed the bald barrier, that I went from balding to bald. I was, it was summer of 2015. Um, 
still kind of a, in my early 30s, which was kind of a bummer. But um, I was out in the yard, and it was this like hot July day. We had a water line break at our house. So if you ever had a broken water line, you can either spend like $10,000 for people to come dig holes and do this, or you can just start digging a lot of holes. And so I'm out there, it's like July, summer, and you're just doing all this stuff. And digging, I think, is like one of the hard, like, have you ever dug a hole? Like, it's crazy hard work. Like, I'm not, anyway, that's, a, that's an aside. That's not, you don't have to write that down. Um, so I'm out there digging a lot of friends, and one of, one of Evie's little friends, she's, she's like eight or nine year old, she's like, oh, Miss, Mr. Campy, like, you're, you're really sweaty, you know, and you're really dirty, you know, we're ha having this conversation, and it's like, you really need to take a shower, you know, and all this kind of stuff. We're like, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping people should. Hey, when you take a shower, do you need to use shampoo? And the question didn't really register with me. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, adults use shampoo, too, you know. They, yeah, that's, she's like, no, no, I, I know that. Do you need to use shampoo? And it kind of like, oh, yeah, no, this is, I don't have any reason to use shampoo. Like, it kind of, the question just hit me. I went from some point in my life I was balding and I was losing my hair to now I'm just a, I'm just a bald man and I've crossed that line, right? So I just remember, like, that stung worse than, like, like I was sore for weeks from the digging, but, like, that question just kind of stung more than, more than any of that. But, like, the point, just beyond knowing when my male mat pattern baldness really set in an effect is, I think sometimes, like, there's this, there's this point where I kind of viewed myself sort of on this spectrum of, 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 of how much hair I had, but clearly I had crossed a certain line. I think so often people put themselves on, on this spectrum of, you know, I, I'm, I'm somewhat dependent on God. I really need some help from God. I'm, I'm a little needy from God. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I have some spiritual need. I have some physical need. I'm sort of, spiritually speaking, I'm not perfect, I, I fall short. I'm sort of breaking spiritually. But, but one of the things that Scripture is just so clear is, no, we, we are completely broken spiritually. We are completely in need. We are completely desperate. We're not sort of somewhere on the spectrum. We're all born past that line. We are all broken. We are all in need of provision. We, we cannot give. We cannot provide. We are completely dependent. We are completely desperate spiritually and physically, we are dependent in every way. And so we need provision in every way that is from outside of us. So Jesus alone is our provision. Second thing I want to look at is who the provider is not. So we are dependent. We are desperate in every way. Now, again, to state the obvious, we are all in need of provision, and we cannot provide for any of our needs. We cannot provide physically for our needs. We cannot provide spiritually on what we need because of the problem of sin. Now, I think we're all well-versed in that, right? I don't think this is, I don't think anybody's wondering about that reality, but, but I think sometimes, just as people, and I, and I can do this, we, we, we can know theologically that we are completely dependent on God, and yet we can live our lives as if we are still somewhat reliant on us. And so we can know that Jesus is our ultimate provider, but the day-to-day kind of depends on me. Or we can do things where we can, we, we can mistake and we can kind of get category confusion between areas and, 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 and places where God chooses to use me. And we can mistake that for then, therefore, these areas are dependent on me. Here, here's what I mean. I, I think as, as a pastor, one of, one of the great temptations of being a pastor and, and laboring and 
and, and working uh, obviously for, for, for a church of people is sometimes you, you can think of a way of, of areas where, okay, you're being used by God in the context of the church. And it's so easy to, to mistake that for, therefore the church is dependent on me in some way. Or, or as a dad, right? It, it, it's so easy to, to go to, okay, here's how God is using me. Here's how he is calling me as a dad. Here, here's areas where he's sort of, he, he, he's, he's, sort of he, he's asking me to labor. He's asking me to, to work. He's asking me to pray. He's asking me to invest. And, and, and you know, you're, you're laboring and you're investing. You're, you're doing the stuff. And therefore, ultimately, my kids are reliant on me. And so what happens when we do that is we start seeing, not, we start confusing area where he uses us and calls us to areas where now he's dependent on us. And what happens when we start depending on ourselves is we stop looking primarily to him, but we start looking to me for, for accomplishment and for purpose and for, for strength and on all these things. I don't know if you can relate to that in any way. But as parents, thinking about some role you serve in the church, thinking about at work, Think about maybe some, some area you want to help a friend, and it's just, boy, so, something is so clear to you, and boy, it, it's on me for them to see this in their life. I think we can go from quickly being used in some way and seeking to be faithful for God, which is good, is to reliant on ourselves for these things. And one of the things I, I love about the picture we see of the disciples here is they were called on God to do something, but they were completely incapable of doing it. And so they were given a job that was simply too big for them, right? I'll say it's an important job they were given. They were called to minister to roughly 20,000 people, right? I mean, they, they've just gotten back from ministering and preaching to others, and then they come back, and Jesus says, okay, you feed them. Except, what do we see? They can't feed them, right? They maybe can scrounge up enough food for one person. They have no money. They have no time. They have no means. They have no ability to do this. So either the job they're given cannot be done or they're called to rely on someone else to do it. What we see is that they, were rely that they, they needed to rely on God. Now, and in the reliance on God, and, and being called to something that they ultimately couldn't accomplish. Even in the midst of it, it wasn't just, okay, feed 10, oh, I can't feed 20,000, all right, so do nothing. So God, what did he do then? He said, okay, here's what you're going to do then. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna sit them down in groups of 50. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, what does this have to do with feed? Like, we've got a problem of 20,000 people. Like, maybe it'll create more order as people are hungry like, that'll be great. It will maybe stop a riot from happening as 20,000 people can eat. But, like, sitting them down doesn't ultimately solve the problem. But their obedience preceded their understanding. And so he told them to give them food, which they couldn't provide, they can't do. Tells them that, okay, we'll sit the people down, receive the food. And what do they see? So that they see that they obey. Now, I suspect they didn't have a clue as to what Jesus was going to do. Though I think they had good reason to know what he was capable of and that he had called them to it. And so for them, that was enough. And I'll just add, I think, I mean, you see, for children of God, I'll add, I think, for children of parents, our call to obedience and our need to obey precedes our understanding of why or what will this look like? Or what's going to be the result if I do this? At times we're called to walk the path of obedience in, in, in very, at least in partial darkness. 
Alexander McLaren writes, it is often our God-given duty to attempt tasks to which we are conspicuously inadequate in the confidence that he who gives them has laid them on us to drive us to himself and there to find sufficiency. The best preparation of his servants for their work in the world is the discovery that their own stores are, are small. So we are completely dependent on God. We are completely desperate. We are completely on dependent on God for the necessities of life, physically and spiritually. We are even dependent on God for what he has called us to do. Right? As parents, he's called us to this task of, of loving and training uh, and raising up the next generation. Right? Psalm 78, one generation shall declare to the next generation the wondrous deeds of the Lord. Only here's the thing as a parent I recognize, I cannot change a heart. I, I, can't, I can't make them love Jesus. So what's he called me to? He's called me to proclaim and to pray and to depend on him. We're on a mission as a church, right? We want to multiply and mature followers of Jesus in our community and beyond, and yet I recognize as a person, I can't, I can't convert a neighbor. I can't make a neighbor love Jesus. But I can do what he's called me to do, which is seek to love them and share with them and proclaim to them as we depend fully and only on Jesus. Is there mission internally to help each other grow as disciples, right? We can't, we can't grow one another. I can't, we can't bring spiritual maturity to life in anybody else. And yet we can love and we can pray and we can fellowship and we can invest and we do all these things in dependence on him. Disciples of Jesus are called to a task they cannot do because it's all part of a setup for God to act so that God gets all the glory. See, not being able to accomplish what we are called to if we view this wrongly, it, it's just a key to just profound despair because I'm not enough, because I can't do it, and so I'm going to strive and fail and strive and fail and strive and fail. But when we view this rightly, it just unlocks humility and joy because, of, of course, oh, feed the crowd? Okay, I, I can't do that. Here, here's what I can do, Lord. Here's what, here's what you've called me to do is bring this little bit of an offering of food we have, a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish. There's enough for a meal for one. Okay, you've called me to help sit down the crowd. Okay, I, I, I can do that. I'm going to do my little bit that you've called me to do in faithfulness, and he just does the rest. So as I, I, I can parent, and I can proclaim, and I can pray, and do the, all these things we must do, but we recognize that, God, you're, you're the one. You're the only one who can accomplish what you call us to. We, we are not... We are not the ones who are able to provide for even what you've called us to do. You are the one. And so in everything he calls us to, we don't look primarily to ourselves and our strength and our effort, but we look to him and we rely on him. So Jesus alone is our provision. Point number three is this. Jesus is provider and provision. So here, clearly, Je Jesus gives provision. Here, he gave them food. It started with a small amount, and then it started with about enough for one boy to eat a meal, and he fed thousands. Let me be clear, Jesus isn't sort of, this wasn't sort of this example of what I heard wrongly that day of, hey, this, this little boy's example inspired others, and food just came overflowing out of everybody's knapsack, out of everybody's knapsack that they brought for their own meal. That's not what happened here. He's not following scientific law. He's like, all right, well, we, you know, we got this, and it's not, not like a cooking show, and let me open up this giant kitchen and sort of add, you know, you know add, I don't know, like 1,000 pounds of yeast, and we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll do this. No, Jesus is just creating out of nothing. He's just creating out of nothing. Yet again, he's used to this, enough to feed 20,000 people. 
So here is our provider. He is our provider for all things we need. Matthew 7 says he provides for the birds of the air, flowers of the field. How much, does he, how much more does he care and provide for us? So he is the one ultimately who provides for all our physical needs. He is the one who enables all that he calls us to do. But in this passage, it's not, we, we see not just that he gives and provides. We also see how Jesus is the fulfillment and how he foreshadows not just being our provider, but how he himself will be and is our provision. See, in this passage, we, we, we see, if you're reading this and you're familiar with, with the Old Testament and those who would be reading this on this day would say, oh, wait, there, there's, there's sort of some scenes playing out that we've seen before, isn't there? There's some, there's some background that, that looks really familiar to those who knew the Old Testament. There's, there's sort of echoes of Moses that are, that are just running through this as we know that Moses foreshadowed Christ as Moses was the one who had his people led to a desert place and, and that desert place where he would perform miracles. Here when it says death, desolate place, the actual Greek literal word is a, a, a desert place and where Moses was there performing miracles, it was in the wilderness. It was in the wilderness that Moses led God's people to to, to God providing manna or daily bread coming down from heaven, created out of nothing and f- giving his people food to eat and substance to eat every day. That we see that Jesus, as, as they were brought out into this wilderness, he, he's, he's sort of the fulfillment of sort of this, okay, there's, there's this daily bread being brought down for, the, for his people in the desert at, to get them through, that we see, we see shadows of that. We see this, this, as he sits in groups of 50 is sort of the orderliness in which people sat as it was reminiscent of the Mosaic camp in the wilderness. And you know, as we see that Jesus is providing, though, it's, he's no more than just providing manna. We see that he is more than just a, 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 a second or a better Moses. We, we, you might have shadows if you're familiar, and we have the passage up in 2 Kings where it says a man came from Baal Shalalah, bringing the man of God bread, the, the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So we set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of God. And so we see where the prophets where Moses was able to lead his people through the wilderness and still be fed daily bread from the Lord, that the prophets were able to, by relying on God, even feed and have some left over. But we see that, so he's the, that we see here that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, that all these things that we're now seeing that, oh, as, as the story of life unfolds, that, oh, Jesus, he's not just a better one, that he, he's fulfilling all these things we saw shadows of, we saw, we, saw, we saw arrows pointing to up ahead, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophets and miracles and temporary solutions being pointed to, that he is the, he is the permanent provider. Kent Hughes writes, the impact of all this as the miracle unfolded was to put forth the divinity and transcending sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He was more than a second Elisha or a second Moses. He was the provider. So he is, he is the fulfillment of all these things that we see pointing to him. And this story is just one more example of, yep, all that the Old Testament was pointing to is, is coming in to complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But it's not just that Jesus 
is a better and more permanent provider for his people. This passage also foreshadows how. See, he is the permanent provider because he is the permanent provision. See, this scene foreshadows how Jesus would provide primarily by providing himself. See, as this scene unfolded before thousands of people, I don't think there was one besides Jesus that recognized, oh, we'd see a very, a very similar scene again of Jesus Christ taking the bread, looking up to heaven, and then breaking that bread and giving it to his people. Luke, it says, in taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Matthew records the Last Supper this way. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. I think out of the tens of thousands of people there that day, only one really understood the significance of who, Je of significance of who Jesus is and what he was about to do and how he could be the permanent provision for his people. Jesus provides because he came, became our provision. He broke, because the bread that he broke that day to provide for his people would point to a broken bread ahead of Jesus himself, body being broken, to supply from heaven all that the people of God would need. So Jesus Christ alone is, is our perfect provision. The reason he can supply all we need is because his broken body is more than enough for his people. See, his, he, he, he owns all things. All things are from him and for him and to him. So he can, he can create out of nothing. It, it's easy to provide physically for the needs of his people. Right? He, he can create out of nothing. But for the need caused by our sin, he was pointing it ahead to the fact that he would stop at nothing to provide for us. Our need is so great that nothing less would do, and his provision is so great that nothing more is needed. See, I love the picture here. Again, we see it. After the people ate and ate and ate, they were full and satisfied, and so much more remains because his provision is not on short supply or barely enough. He is lavish in what he provides for all his people. It's not just enough so that we can be fed or it's not just enough so that we can be saved it's it's enough to cover every sin past present and future his righteousness transforms our character we don't we don't just get by god is always with his people always providing for his people he doesn't just give once he gives daily he gives hourly he gives moment by moment to his people anyone here that does not have a relationship with god through jesus christ i told you about that terrible message i heard in college actually it wasn't bad because it was poorly spoken. I mean, he's a far better speaker than, than I'll ever be. But it's because of the basic moral failing of not just denying a miracle. And, and he's denying a need for Christ. See, his view of Christ was that Jesus was so great. He is the ultimate example of what we are to do. He is the ultimate example of servanthood. And so, listen, if we would just follow Jesus' example... If we would just be radically generous in servanthood, then, you know, if we would just follow that example, then that'll lead to a happy and blessed life. That will lead to being right before God. And here's what we need to see. Jesus Christ is not primarily our example. Or if he was, we'd all be doomed because we could never follow it. 
we could never be righteous like Jesus. We could never obey like Jesus. We, can, we are born as sinners. We are born in sin. We are born with a sin nature, and it, it entangles everything we do. It pulls everything we do. It makes us not just that we're somewhere on the spectrum between good and bad. We are born slaves to sin. We cannot follow Jesus' example. So he did not come to inspire us. He came to save us. He came to be our sacrifice for sin. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with you more about this. I talked to the person you came with this morning, but trust in Jesus Christ because he is our only provision for all people. So whether you, if you've known him for a while, the question is, do you trust in him for your provision every day? So just a few sort of application thoughts or questions. As, as you think about your life, does your, does your daily just... Do, does your prayer, as you think about your life, does it, as you think about your daily need, does your prayer, does it, does it express daily? Does, does it, would, would, coming out of your heart and of, of your mouth, would it, would it, would it, would it be accurate to say, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. I am daily dependent on him in every way. Or is it, hey, I pray before dinner, you know, let's acknowledge that, that it comes from the Lord. Or do I recognize? Everything I have each and every day is totally and only because of Jesus Christ. Does, does your heart then not only express gratitude for him, does it, is your instinct when, when something comes into your life, then, then I need to rely on him. When something simple like a bill comes, that okay, I don't know where this is going to come from. Okay, uh, of course I need to work. But is your instinct, God, I need you. You are my provider. I trust you. And so I'm going to look to you first. And I'm going to obey you in ways that don't make sense because you're calling me to do it. So, okay, I see this bill, and yet I see you calling me in some way to to live generously and to act radically and to be faithful in giving. And so it doesn't make sense to me on paper. I don't see how you're going to do that, but I'm going to trust and rely on you. Okay, Jesus, you're, you're calling me to, okay, I've been hurt in community, and Jesus, you're calling me to invest again in these people. Well, I don't have the strength to do that. I don't see how making yet another investment in this person will bear fruit because the first five times I invest in this person, I've, I just feel more burned from, and yet I hear you telling me to invest again in this person. That doesn't make sense to me. And yet, at times, he calls us to, in a sense, sit people in the rows of 50 and just at, watch what God is going to do. So we, we are called to, to, to act in reliance and faith on him, whatever whether, whether that makes sense to us or not. As a, as a parent, who, in my own mind, as, as I, I just need to reflect on me, who's, who's primarily the one influencing their life? Is it, is it me? Am I the primary reason for the outcome of their heart and their soul and their mind, or is it primarily God? See, do I try to control their hearts? Do I think that I can give them enough rules that govern them, that sort of govern their behavior enough that they'll come to know Jesus, and that's my reliance? Or do I proclaim and pray, and when I mess up, I, I ask forgiveness, and of course do I work hard because these years matter, and this role matters, and God is using the roles of parents in their lives. Uh, of course. We're going to labor at this. <laughs> we're going to spend a lot of time on our knees. We're going to spend a lot of, we're going to spend our, our best years. We're going to spend great years and, and, and long hours investing and investing and investing, but knowing, but it's only the Lord who softens hearts. It's only the Lord that draws. It's only the Lord that can reveal himself to them. And so our relationship 
as I think about parenting, it's not, okay, 50% me, 50% on the Lord. No, he, he uses means. He uses parents. He does all these things. But he's calling me to a task that I can't do. Because he's, he's but in my parenting, both making my children rely on him, and he's teaching me as a dad to rely on him. So he's going to keep calling me to a task I can't do so that I continually look to him and point to him. If you're a student, as you think about your future, do your think about your future and things like jobs and school and relationships and friendships do you view life as primarily okay the lord gives me a direction he kind of gives me a road map for my life but it's up to me to walk it it's up to me to make each right decision along the way and to map it out perfectly and so it's so he's going to kind of provide the framework but it's on me to walk in it perfectly and to not misstep or does he call me as his child to obey one step and I don't even see what he's up to in that step but he's going to call me to obey this one step he's going to call me to pursue this person even though I'm not totally sure what the outcome of that's going to be or uh, he's calling me to trust mom and dad even though they don't seem right in this one or he's calling me to, to study for a subject and be faithful in a subject that I see having no importance to my future but he's calling me to that step. And then he's calling me to obey the next one and the next one and the next one. And to learn that we don't obey God based on what we see of his plan, but we obey because of what we know to be true of his character. As we wrestle with sin, does my, does my heart indicate that Jesus is the, my only provision? Or is it Jesus plus my best effort, plus my good intentions. Okay, to fight sin, I'm going to make this plan. I'm going to sort of set up these safeguards. I'm going to sort of have this action plan of accountability. And let's do all these things because these are the means God uses to change our hearts and to grow us. Of course, do things when you struggle with sin. Have people in your life. Have fellowship. Have community. Have accountability. Take steps to, to put sin to death because that's the means he uses. But what he ultimately does is not, it's not reliance on these means, it's reliance on him. And so it's not my good intentions, it's not my effort that kills and crucifies it. It's Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and over the grave and his spirit being poured into me and that, that so come out of it, a desire to put sin to death that I am just transformed over time. But it's not me, it's not my fight, it's that Jesus Christ is the victorious one. And so all my steps, all that I'm going to do, all my labor is I'm going to labor knowing that it's ultimately him. Because in all of life, there's going to be so many moments where we labor in the unknown. We, we're called to obey, not knowing what God's about to do. But because of who we know our God to be, because we know that he alone is our provision, that he alone is not just our provision, but provision for all these things, we are a people that lean fully and only into him. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to ever increasingly be a people that aren't just reliant on Jesus theologically, but every moment of our day, every, every act of obedience, every, every battle with sin, every, every, just all the things that you're calling us to, Lord, we are only and fully reliant on you. Lord, we are so grateful that you give us tasks that we cannot accomplish. 
that are too big for us. Lord, you've given Living Hope Church a mission too big for us. You've given parents a mission and a job too big for them. You have given students who are looking at their future a job that is too big. And so, Lord, would we be those who don't look at that in despair, but look at that with great hope because Jesus Christ is our perfect provision. So would you help us to rely more on you, more on you each and every day we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.